0: Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to StageCraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and joining us this week is Dre Holder, whose play, Too Heavy for Your Pocket?, has just opened in the Roundabout Theatre Company's underground space. Jare Brian Holder, thank you so much um, for, for joining us, and congratulations on your New York debut. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be speaking with you. <laughs> Great. Could you start us off by just summarizing briefly what the play Um uh Too Heavy for Your Pocket is about for listeners who haven't yet seen it?
1: Too Heavy for Your Pocket is a story that takes place in Nashville, Tennessee in 1961, kind of at the height of the civil rights movement. And it is about a family who lives on the outskirts of Nashville whose lives are beginning to be impacted by the progress that the civil rights movement is being made. And so um, the main character, Bozy Brandon, has to make a decision whether or not to join the civil rights movement or continue with his education. And it's kind of about his decision and and all of the things that happen after he makes it.
0: What was the genesis for this play? What gave you the idea to to, to write this
1: piece? Well, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. and I grew up, you know, going to the Lorraine Motel, and, and the civil rights movement was actually a really big part of how I understood, uh, American history. Um, and, and all of my family lived in Nashville. And recently I kind of put the pieces together that, wow, my, um, my family lives in Nashville. The civil rights movement happened, (laughs) you know, the sit-ins occurred in Nashville. I don't think my people protested. (laughs) Um, you know, my folks didn't march, my folks didn't do any of those things. And it really didn't, hit me until very recently with, um, with the surge, the resurgence of uh, Black Lives Matter and the Women's March on Washington and these kind of things, that, um, that the choice to protest was being, coming in my own life, and I realized that my family hadn't made that decision. Um, and so I was watching Selma with my grandmother <laughs> um, and, and The Butler and some of those other movies that have occurred in the past year about years about um, the civil rights movement, and my grandmother says, yeah, I knew one of those Freedom Riders. Can you believe he threw his education away to hop on a bus? Huh. <laughs> and, right, it really took me aback, because that's not how we remember that moment in time. Um, and, you know, we, we really, you know, um, celebrate the Freedom Riders actions and the people who did march in protest. Um, and protest. And I got to thinking, and it, and it hit me, my, my grandmother was, you know, in her early 20s, was on her fourth child in 1961, hmm. and um, and her life looked really different than that of Martin Luther King or Diane Nash or some of the people who we remember from this time period. That that she, that her husband was uh, was a, uh, a construction worker and illiterate, and she was raising a family, and and life looked a, a lot different from people um, who, who who lived in 1961 who were impacted by the injustices that were occurring but really took different actions at the time so so that's a long answer to your question that the genesis is my own family and myself and wondering how um how I could be of value as a student who was at Yale University and not able to go down to um, the cities where some of the major protests were occurring and realizing that my own family did not participate in a way that history kind of expects anyone who was around in, you know, that time and that place to to have participated.
0: Yeah, I found that really interesting that you uh, did focus on um, people that we don't usually see in plays or movies uh, about um, this subject. And I also thought the play dealt as much as it did with the decisions they made um, with issues of love and marriage and, and friendship um, mm-hmm. as, as, as well. Um, was that important to you to get particularly the nature of blackmail friendship in there?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a scene in straight out of Compton, um, the, that, that when, one of the um, the character's brother dies that all of his friends his 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 bandmates give him a hug at the end of the at the end of the service. Mm-hmm. And that was a retina burn for me because I can't think of any other movies I've seen where black male love has been on such display in such an honest and vulnerable way. Mm-hmm. And and I really want to contribute to that. I really want to contribute to our narratives of that include moments where black men hug each other or love each other, um, or even check each other and and, and hold each other accountable. And the same goes for the women in the play, the two, the two female friends. I wanted moments where they could talk to each other, honestly, about things that had nothing to do with men or nothing to do with their husbands, that it was about, um, female friendship. And just what does it mean when, when two women love each other, two men love each other and can express that on stage. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> that, that was, was something that was important to
0: me. It was great to see. Um, this play won uh, the Lorenz um, Hatcher uh, Award. How long have you been working on it? What, did you start when you were at Yale? or?
1: Yes, I started when I was at Yale. So, um, so my second year at Yale, I actually went through a pretty um, deep depression, and, um, not dissimilar to, to the one that I experienced in November. Mm. And, um, and I, I really was grappling with two big questions. One was, what am I doing here? You <laughs> know, why am I in new, <laughs> new England studying theater when, when, when people are losing their lives and when, when the call to March, the call to arms is so strong. And the other thing that I was, um, grappling with was how do I find joy? How do, how do i how do i be a positive force in these times and um and too heavy for your pocket really marked the um, my emergence from that dark place where I could think to myself no there is value in what I'm doing going to school there is value in just having healthy relationships and being able to exist um in in really hard political times that there's value in this and so and so, I, I began writing this as a way to just write myself out of this deep sadness and, and grief that I was experiencing, um, let's say two years ago. Yeah. So this was, it's so funny. I, um, uh, this play also won the Candida graduate playwriting competition at the Alliance Theater. So, um, Margot Bordelon, the director and I got to do the play in Atlanta as well in February. Um, and so now we're doing it again, the, the, the New York premiere. And so all time has kind of blended together because Too Heavy for Your Pocket has really been my world for the last two years.
0: Hmm. <laughs> has it changed much um, between Atlanta and here in New York?
1: Yes, it has. Um, in Atlanta, Bozy, the, the character who, who got, gets the fifth university scholarship, was very much the central focus. The play was about him. Um, and, I, and, I, and I was thinking in my head that I was kind of subverting form by focusing on one of the female characters, Sally, and, um, and the producers at the roundabout let me know, hey, Jure, I think you really can um, go harder with this and, and really nail the hammer on the head that both these opportunities as a black man are actually quite different than Sally's as a black woman and that the political awakening that she has is worth giving more airtime. And so in this New York production, um, I think that there are two protagonists, Bosie and Sally, whereas in Atlanta, I really just focused on Bosie.
0: What got you started writing plays? <laughs>
1: um, I have, I'm, I'm one of those lucky people who has always known what they wanted to do. I always knew I was going to be a writer. Um, and when I was in middle school, uh, believe it or not, I read every Toni Morrison book my mom owned um, <laughs> in middle school. <laughs> in fact, my friends would get mad at me when I would like edit their, you know, when we would share our little stories with each other. And I was like, well, this isn't as good as Toni Morrison. you think so Exactly. And it didn't hit me until college that that was very unfair of me. (laughs) But really, my standard had been I want to be Toni Morrison. (laughs) And when I got to uh, college, I went to Morehouse uh, College in Atlanta. Um, I took some English classes and some lit classes, and I realized that novel uh, writing was maybe not for me. But I also took a theater appreciation class at uh, Spelman College, what uh, right next door, and I wrote a ten minute play, and at the end of it, everybody clapped.
0: Huh.
1: And it blew my mind that I could write this thing that could be experienced in a room, and people got to immediately respond to it negatively or positively. People got to immediately respond to it. And I've never attempted novel writing again. You huh. know my my life, my life was dedicated to playwriting from that very
0: moment. Is music important to you, too? Because there's a, a lot of music um, in Too Heavy for Your Pocket as well.
1: There is, there is. Um, Terrell Alba McCraney tells a story he was lucky enough to study under August Wilson when, when Wilson was still with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shares a play with Wilson and Wilson tells him, you yeah, know, this is a good play, man, but, but listen to your iPod more. You know, <laughs> you <laughs> just walk around and listen to your iPod. That music is actually a part of the rhythm of light and I love that story when Sorrell tells it um, and I think I, I do really find myself trying to figure out how sound and music and musicality finds itself into any of my plays I have no musical ability at all <laughs> um, so, so it's not my forte at all my my partner is a musician, so so he is very much um, he is very much in that world, and so I ask his advice a lot. But for me, it's always an an effortful thing to really make sure that I'm including sound and music in my plays. And and fortunately, um, the sound designer for the show, Ian Scott, was my roommate at Yale, actually, and he knows me quite well, and so he was really able to nail the sound that i he knew that was going on in my head and bring it to the stage. So I really do accredit that to Ian and Margot because I, that's not my forte personally.
0: <laughs> but it really works in the show. Um, I love it. And
1: those, and those actors are such great singers. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, that helps. <laughs> that helps. Now, when you were um, uh, at Yale, did you study with Sarah Rule?
1: I did. I did. I kind of call her my fairy godmother, though she's she envi- she's she's potentially embarrassed by that term, but <laughs> um, but but she. I'm debating which story I want to tell because I love her so much, and there's so many to tell. Um, one of my favorites is when I when I first got to when I got my interview at Yale. Mm-hmm. I just knew I wasn't going to get it. I was just like, "It's a fluke, you know." Thank you. I took <laughs> pictures. I was I was just like pretty confident that this was a one one and done. And so when I met with Sarah at the tea shop to have my interview, I had my notepad. I was like. Please give me notes on the play. I just, I just want you to help me get better. And she was so taken aback. She's like, "I am not notes to you. I love the play." Um, and um, and that's really true for for Sarah in general, and and how I learned from her is very much. She's really great at seeing what I'm doing and making small recommendations, either things to read or things to watch, or even tiny adjustments that make the biggest impact. And and I. And it, and every time it has blown my mind um, how much she sees me, hmm. and and I and I've taken that into my own pedagogy. I, I teach at Emory right now, and I really try to make sure I see my students um, in the same way that I really felt seeing by Sarah Rule, who is who is my favorite godmother. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, one thing that I was struck by, and I think uh, um, other people in the audience were struck by at first was the use of the n-word. Did, uh-huh. did you have any hesitation about that, any thought process about that? I think the audience uh, adjusted to it as as the play went on. I think we should say for people who haven't seen it yet, the there are two couples on stage, uh, two married couples, long-time friends, very close friends. Um uh, and and all four are black. Um, mm-hmm. But there is use of uh, the N word. So was that? What was your thought process there?
1: It's funny. I did not realize how uh, striking it was until my New York audience. Huh. Um, it, it, in any in any of my developments of the play, I got to work on it at the Kennedy Center, and I and we did a production at the and uh, at the Alliance. That New York audiences have been particularly sensitive to the N word, and I am fascinated by it. And I want to be honest; I haven't wrapped my head around that quite yet. I don't I don't use the N word in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, neither does my family. I, I wasn't one of those people who grew up in a house where people swore a lot in general. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was an adult the first time I heard my mom swear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so when I wrote this play, what I really tried to be true to is the, the character's voices. And so mm-hmm. Sally is a really um, devout mm-hmm. Christian, and so mm-hmm. she doesn't swear at all. Right. But Ebony's in the juke joint all the time, and Tony goes to the number house. And and they're worldly people, so it pops up, and um, and and really honesty was what I was going for. It, more than anything else, I felt like these characters, these people, would use the N word in these situations, and very rarely, aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are a couple of cases where it is very pointed, and they are trying to offend. But for the most part, it's just a part of the vernacular. Um, and it's Sally who's like the moral compass and wagging her finger every time they kind of step out of line. But it's, but I want to let you know, I'll be honest that I haven't I haven't really quite um, reconciled the discomfort. And I think that I admire and appreciate the discomfort. I think that the N word has a really Dark history and can be a really hurtful word in a lot of situations. Um, but I don't have any kind of vendetta. It, it was very much yeah. about, you know, this is what I think these people would say.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I said, I think people adjusted to it um, with that same understanding that these were these characters. Um, So, yeah, yeah, Um, what else are you are you working on right now that you can uh, tell us about? I know the show is opening um, this week and um, so people have an opportunity to see it. But what else is 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 on your uh, agenda?
1: Well, right now, actually, um, I'm mostly the opening is actually tomorrow, (laughs) So. To, to stave off anxiety, <laughs> I've been really working on another play. Um, and something that's amazing about the Roundabout Underground is that when they decide to do your play, when they say, when I got the call, hi, Jure, we want to produce Too Heavy for Your Pocket, it is accompanied with, and we want to commission your next play. Which that, is Which is, I mean, it's amazing, it's unheard of, it's all those things, and and what it means is Too Heavy for Your Pocket is not my last opportunity, my final one, one chance to impress New York mm-hmm. um, and to make my mark that, that if this gets a bad review, um, my life isn't over. In fact, I am working on a roundabout commission right now. Um, and it is a contemporary play and a dark comedy because <laughs> I have been in 1961 in this uh, kind of dramatic world for about two years now, so I'm ready for something funny. Um, and uh, and I'm calling it my gay Raisin in the Sun play. It, it's about, it's, it's, uh, I hope it's a hoot. I hope Roundabout likes it. I hope people enjoy it. Um, but it is about three generations of um, gay black men that there's a, there's a, uh, a patron and his son comes out on the same day that his father moves in to live with him um, because his father does want doesn't want to go into hospice, so he's dealing with his father's death at the same time that he's dealing with his son coming out, and uh, and then chaos and humor ensue uh, afterwards. Ooh, so that's I what I'm working
0: on this. now. Yeah, I want to see <laughs> it. I want to see it. Um, in the meantime. Um, Really good luck um, with with this one, Too Heavy for Your Pocket, which is opening um, uh, this week at the Roundabout Theatre Company's uh, underground space. Again, thank you, Jeray, so much for, for, for doing this.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful chat.
0: And thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts, which you can find on BroadwayRadio.com.